This sermon was recorded at Highway Palo Alto in Palo Alto, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. My name is Steve Joe, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Highway Community Palo Alto. And um, just want to say good morning and welcome to our worship gathering. Um, We are going to be continuing our series um, called Set Free to to Live Free, um, which is in the book of Galatians, which will help us more deeply understand and experience what the gospel truly is, which is the good news of freedom offered in and through Jesus Christ. Um, So last week we took a break to talk about City Dive, and so we're going to jump right back in this morning. Um, And this morning we come to a kind of the centerpiece, the kind of hinge point of of Galatians. Um, It's an absolutely critical passage. And so I want to prepare you that this morning, and it was going to be a little bit more like technical than we might typically do on a Sunday, but um, this is because this is such a key and very theologically dense passage, which actually has very important implications in our practical lives. So we're going to unpack it piece by piece. Um, I think that's going to be really fun though. Um, some of you, you know, that sort of stuff is great for you. Others, um, if you're, don't be intimidated by that. It's going to be fun. And more importantly, Galatians 2, really understanding this well, opens up new and life-giving ways for us to fully receive and be transformed by the gospel in our lives. And if that's not enough for you, we've got a really fun video at the end. So just hang tight for that. Um, um, so, again, we're going to jump back. It's been a couple weeks. We're actually going to jump back uh, a couple verses, and, and uh, some of this will be review um, from what we've done before, but this is really important. Um, and it's important to kind of understand the story of what's going on in Galatians as well as where Paul's at in the argument. So we're going to start uh, in verse, chapter 2, verse 11, which is a couple. We're going to um, circle back a little bit, just a few verses. And what's going on in this story, um, this is a letter from Paul written to a church in a place called Galatia, is that there's this massive conflict going on. There's a conflict. There's a battle. And Paul is super mad. He's super mad in this battle. And he's specifically super mad at Cephas, which is another another name for Peter, one of Jesus' most closest disciples and one of the most important leaders of the early church. He's mad, and he wants everyone to know that he's mad. Um, at Peter. So as you see, this is a big, big deal. So let's look into this. So let's look, let's just jump right into the passage. Verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, again, that's Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So you see, Paul is like mad. (laughs) Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when he arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by his hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? All right, so let's, what's going on here? Why is Paul so mad that he needs to oppose Peter to his face, and then call him a man condemned. And who is this circumcision group? Um, And why does it matter that Gentiles, which are people who are not Jewish, follow Jewish customs? And how is Peter not in line with the gospel, the truth of the gospel? And what is the truth of the gospel? So these are some of the questions we're going to be looking at in this passage. So again, to understand this, we need to really deeply understand the backstory of what's going on here. So this is a little bit of review, um, but it's important, and um, hopefully this will help open up the rest of the book to us as we go through it. When the early church began and started to grow, the biggest conflict and question and source of conflict was whether or not Gentiles 
So non-Jews who became Christians, who decided to follow Jesus, had to also become Jewish first in order to be fully saved and fully part of the family of God and participate in the church. So the question again was whether Gentiles have to become Jewish to really become Christians. Now, why is this such an important and heated issue? Now, remember, Jesus was a Jew, and his story and his life emerged out of Jewish history and culture and religion. And Jesus came as the long-awaited Messiah, and this was a very Jewish uh, idea, which was this leader that the Old Testament prophets promised would come to lead and rescue Israel out of foreign oppression, in this case Rome, and rule Israel for God. And this new king was meant to bring the whole rest of the world underneath Israel's national rule under God. That was what the Messiah was, and Jesus made claims that he was the Messiah. So it actually makes some sense, if you think about it, for Jewish Christians to believe that in order for Gentiles to fully be part of this nation, to be fully be part of God's family, that they also needed to become Jewish, identified with the nation of Israel. And in a way, this is a very reasonable way to interpret the Old Testament scriptures. There's lots of passages about that it's very important to do these certain things and to be part of the nation, to be the chosen people. And we're going to get into this more next week, um, but that actually isn't the full and correct way to understand Old Testament texts in light of the events of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. However, as this church kind of grew, uh, through the events of Jesus' life and through the work of the Holy Spirit, God revealed to the leaders of the early church, through people like Paul and others, that the gospel and inclusion into the family of God was open to all people, not just Jews. So they kind of had started to decide this, and the Holy Spirit played a huge role in this. And then, of course, many, many people were becoming Christians, especially many, many Gentiles, which kind of forced this issue. Nonetheless, there was still a group of people still a group of kind of very traditionalist people, um, and, and, and in Galatians they call them the circumcision group, and we'll explain that, who strongly and firmly believe that this was not right. The Gentiles uh, needed to fully become a Jewish to become fully Christian and fully uh, a full participant in the church. They needed to become a Jew first. Now, you might be wondering, how does someone become a Jew, right? Like, isn't that an ethnic identity? Um, for Jews, being Jewish isn't only about ethnicity, it's not just about DNA or family lineage. They didn't even know about DNA, but nonetheless, um, you know what I'm saying. Being part of Israel, being truly Israel, is also about faithfully following the law, which was the instructions given to the Jews in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and then the interpretation of that law by Jewish leaders and scholars after that. So that was called living by the works of the law. And remember that phrase. We're going to come back to, um, that's going to be one of three key terms we're going to talk about this morning. So living by the works of the law meant two things. It meant living rightly and morally according to the ethical guidelines and moral ethical guidelines like the Ten Commandments. But it also meant following laws around ritual boundary markers which marked you as part of the nation of Israel. So there is this moral component, but there's also this, these ritual things that you do that mark you as part of the nation of Israel. Now what are some of those things? These are some of the things that are actually mentioned in the book of Galatians and other places. It's by observing uh, certain holidays and traditions. It's by, uh, uh, and that's like Passover and um, the Day of Atonement. It's by being ritually clean, by doing things like eating kosher, as well as um, avoiding doing unclean things like eating with Gentiles, which was the issue with Peter. And then when you do unclean things, you have to do certain things to become clean again. And most importantly, or very importantly, it's circumcision. 
Circumcision marked you as, at least for males, as part of the Jewish family, as part of the nation of Israel. Which you imagine, might imagine for an adult male convert into the Jewish faith, this comes at quite a cost. Um, this isn't exactly a pleasant thing to do. Now, we need to understand that these are like big, big, big things for, for Jews. This is, this is a big deal. It's, it's harder for, we don't have these types of things. We have other things, but we don't have those types of things. But for Jews and for the nation of Israel, these ritual identity markers are very, very important to what it means to be a Jew. And there's lots of examples and evidence of that. So, again, back in our, back in our world here in Galatians, there were some teaching that, no, Gentile Christians do need to be these works of the laws, and, and they put a lot of pressure, um, especially getting circumcised, and that's why they're called, Paul calls them the circumcision group. So Paul, if you read, if you've read a little bit of the New Testament, you know that his calling and mission is to bring and share the gospel, the good news of Jesus as the king of the world, to the Gentiles. And so part of his mission is what he needed to do was to establish that this, this argument by the circumcision group or other people like this was devastatingly wrong. And what they were teaching was deeply contrary to the gospel, and he had to have it stopped. In fact, earlier in, in Galatians 1, 6 through 7, you might remember, he calls what they're teaching an entirely different gospel, which is no gospel at all. So this is a huge deal to Paul. And Paul and many other church leaders gathered several times, and this is documented in Acts, and they agreed and confirmed that this is the case, that Jews do, uh, Gentiles do not need to become Jewish by doing the works of the law. And because of this, the early church was becoming quite multicultural, and it was becoming this new sort of worldwide family of God, which is what it is today. But in Galatia, and now specifically in verse 11, this is starting to fall apart. We see Peter kind of giving in to the pressures of the more traditional views and practices and stopping eating, ceasing to eat at the same table with his Gentiles, Christian brothers and sisters. And this is a huge problem, and it makes Paul, as we saw, really, really mad. Why did it make him so mad? A couple reasons. We talked about it already. One, it made him a hypocrite. He was two-faced. Second, Paul was this important leader, and he was super influential. He was leading many astray. And thirdly, it caused division. It created Gentile Christians as this sort of second-class citizens within the church. They weren't fully included in part of the family and God, and that did not reflect who Christ was in his mission. But that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem was theological, and not just an intellectual, intellectual theology, but a lived theology. It created big problems in the early church. And Paul is passionate in letting Peter and all the other people in the Galatia, all the Galatians know that returning to these practices of requiring Gentiles to become Jewish in any way was a radical perversion of the gospel. It changed it in a fundamental way, and it caused people to lose the freedom that Christ gave them, and they would return to being spiritual slaves. Why is this the case? So this is where in verse 15 and through the rest of the passage we'll look in today, Paul explains why this is so important. So the first thing is that we need to understand, again, I mentioned three terms. The first term is works of the law. And we have a slide here to show you this. Works of the law. So when you see this term, in the context of Galatians, works of the law means Jewish identity markers. They are things that mark you as part of the nation of Israel. So just remember that as we read. Um, this is very important as we read. And these are things, again, like circumcision and keeping kosher. Okay, let's read in verse 15. Uh, we'll do 15 and 16 first. 
We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that, uh, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law, no one will be justified. All right, so here we see Paul emphatically and repetitively declaring that the works of the law do not justify. The works of the law do not justify. Again, remember, works of the law, lifestyle and ritual practices that mark you as part of the nation of Israel, your identity, those things do not justify. Instead, faith in Christ justifies. So that brings us to the second term we need to learn and understand for this passage, and that is justify. What does it mean to be justified? What does this mean in the context of this passage? Justify or justification or being justified is a very rich term. In our culture, when we read this word, it has mostly a legal connotation. It's a legal word. It means we're to be justified. It's, it's when a judge declares you just and right, and thus, most importantly, not guilty. And it carries this in the context of Jewish culture as well. However, in Jewish culture and in the language of the New Testament, it also has another meaning, and, and, and maybe even more so this, 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 this side of the, this word. It has a relational meaning. To be justified has a relational meaning. To be justified means being restored and reconciled to a right and good relationship with somebody. It's like when you say, you know, you get in an argument with a friend and then you work it out and you say, you know, we're good, right? And he says, we're good and you fist bump or whatever. Or it's like when verbally inexpressive dudes mostly um, express reconciliation by, you know, hugging it out as it may be. So to be justified with God is to be restored into a right and reconciled relationship with God. Paul works this a lot more out in, in Romans 5. He works this out in Romans 5, where he directly connects being justified with the relational state of being reconciled with God. So to be justified with God, it's like, it's kind of like, you know, it's like you're hugging it out with God in a way where we're only, only a lot more profound than that, right? Like, um, but where you know you've sinned and rebelled and deeply hurt God and his creation, yet God has forgiven you and you are in a right relationship with him. All right, so let's look at the two terms we've looked at so far. So we got... Works of the law, again, Jewish identity markers, and justify being in a right, uh, being reconciled to a right relationship with God. Um, so when Paul says, and hold that up there for a little bit, when Paul says we're not justified by works of the law, it means we're not made right relationally with God and guiltless as well by identifying ourselves with being Jewish or really any other thing or identity. And that leads us to the third and final term we need to understand. Because instead, Paul says we need to be justified not by works of the law, but by what? Faith in Jesus. So let's look at the next term. The next term we need to understand, term number three, this is the last one, is faith. Faith in Christ. What does it mean when Paul says we need, or when Paul says faith in Christ? Now, we often think about faith as kind of a belief in something. Um, the Greek word Paul uses here, pistios, means more, much more than that. Much more than that. And this is kind of sometimes a problem with translations. Faith, or pistios, also carries this idea of reliability. The idea of promise, of trust, of confidence. So this faith Paul is talking about here is more than just a like, mental assent 
to something. Like you, you, you have faith in something, so I mentally agree about it. It's more than just a decision you make. It's more than just about kind of an abstract hope or trust you have in something. This word faith is a deep commitment and trust that binds two parties together. It's like covenantal is another word for it. Faith in the New Testament is relational. It's a deep, trusting, committed, whole life with relational covenant between two parties. So faith in God isn't just believing that God exists even though you can't see him. It isn't just sort of trusting that God will make everything okay when you're not doing so well. Faith in God is joining with God in a relationship. It's living in a way that desires and requires us to rely on him. That's what faith in God is. It's this whole life relationship. So there's this sense that through faith, we join with God in a way that affects our entire reality in this relational way. Faith is tied to what we actually do, how we live, the choices we make, and the lives we live, because it's that deep of a relationship. So faith in Christ, it means a holistic, trusting relationship with Jesus. That's what Paul is trying to say when he writes faith in Christ. So to be justified by faith alone means you do what you do and how you live, how you feel, everything about you all matters. Because on our deep relationships, Everything we do, everything we feel, everything we choose, all matters. It's not just, faith is not just a disembodied intellectual belief or abstract hope. You can't just say, well, I, I, I have faith in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, so what I do doesn't really matter. So if I indulge here or there, or ignorantly go along with some, some of our cultural values, or pursue worldly things over godly ones, it's not really, really matter. What really matters is what I believe um, in my mind and what I have faith in. That is not what Paul is saying. And he vehemently would disagree with that. Justification by faith alone in Christ isn't licensed to disobey God, to sin, to follow worldly pursuits and goals, and to ignore and do nothing about the destruction in our world caused by sin, evil, and injustice. That's not what it means. Paul makes this clear in verse 17 and 18. But if, it's, if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves not among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I have destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Now, this is a pretty complicated passage we don't have time to really get into. But Paul makes this really clear that Christ does not promote sin. Later in Romans 6, um, chapter 6, he has a long passage about this. But just Romans 6, 1 through 2. What shall I say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who died in sin. How can we live in it any longer? Because faith in Christ isn't just an intellectual belief, again. It's not just abstract hope or trust. It's a dynamic, living, interactive, trusting relationship with Christ. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight reflects on this passage in this way. We delude ourselves if we think because we have made some decision, we are done with it and forever secure in God's eyes. We delude ourselves if we think, we, we think we can live immoral lives, shack up with partners who are not our spouses, defraud others of their money, take no action to alleviate social ills in our world, and live in constant tension with our children and our family members. We delude ourselves, I say, if we can think we can live like this and pretend we are at peace with God and enjoy his son's justifying work. Biblical faith in Jesus is about your whole life, 
everything you do in relationship with Jesus. And this is important, not just, not just because of it, but because this kind of full holistic faith in Christ is essential to how we are actually rescued from sin, how we're transformed by the grace given us in Jesus' death and resurrection. It is the mechanism, so to speak, of how our justification by faith sets us free to live free. It is the way it works. So that's why it's so important. Let's read on in verses 19 through 21 to see how this works. Paul gets into this a little bit. I, I, died to, I died to the law through the law so that I could live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live now in my body, I live by faith indeed, by the faithfulness of God's son who loves me, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't ignore the grace of God because if we become righteous through the law, then Christ died through no pur- for no purpose. The reason why relational faithfulness to Jesus is what justifies us is that when we are in a faithful covenantal relationship with Jesus, both in our beliefs and how we live, our sinful, selfish selves die. They're crucified with Christ. And instead, Christ lives in us. Instead of us trying really hard to fulfill what we're supposed to be, we die. And instead, Christ comes and lives with us and changes us. Verse 20 says, if we live by faith, this interactual, loyal, whole life relationship with Jesus, our lives today in our physical bodies, this isn't just an abstract thing, are linked and part of Jesus' own faithfulness to God and love for us because Christ will live in you. We're made right with God because our whole lives, our, this relationship with Jesus causes us to be linked with Jesus, the one who, motivated by love for us and faithfulness to the Father, suffered and died and gave himself up for you and me and the whole world. This, this, as verse 21 says, is grace. It's grace. This is something that's freely given to you and I. It's a gift from God. It's grace. Note that it's not just about our faith. Verse 20 also says it's about Jesus' faithfulness. It's because of Jesus' faithfulness to obey his Father and go to a painful, humiliating death on a cross. It's because he loved us that we have this gift of justification by faith in Christ. It's grace. It's all a gift. It's all a gift. Being made right with God is not something we have to earn or achieve or strive to have by being Jewish or by being American or by being liberal or conservative or by being good or following the rules or by being cool or being someone who's made it, by being a Bay Area homeowner, by being a winner, by being someone who only gets the best in life or by anything else. There is nothing that can make you Justified that can make you right with God other than faith in Christ. We can't add anything to it. Otherwise, it ceases to be a gift. It ceases to be grace. Christ should be our sole identity. Nothing else, nothing else can save you. Nothing else can justify you and make you right with God. Nothing else can transform you in the same way. Our sole identity is our faith, which again is our deep relationship with Christ. That's the only thing that can justify you. This is why Paul was so upset at Peter. 
Peter was destroying the gift of grace that Jesus gave to us by letting the circumcision group replace the free gift of grace from Jesus, free to the whole world with, with, with another gospel. Peter let the gospel of grace be replaced with the gospel of being Jewish, of being circumcised, of being part of God's chosen nation, the old ways of thinking. Paul knew how precious grace is and was. Nothing can be added to this gift of grace, of faith in Jesus, again, or it ceases to be faith. No other identity can justify you before God. Only the gift of grace and faith in Jesus can justify you. Later in Galatians 3, uh, Paul famously writes, this is the most famous passage in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. This is, Paul's trying to say, there is no other state of being, nothing that divides you, nothing that can justify you other than your faith in Christ Jesus because we are one in him. It's grace. Of course, I'm skipping ahead. And again, what does grace given and received do? It transforms us. It changes us. It changes us. We're going to watch an interesting little short film about a woman that I think reflects a lot of this passage, about a woman who's been hiding something from her parents for a very long time. And it's an amazing little story about grace that I think you'll find brings some life to what we've been talking about. So let's watch this video. Welcome to Videos for You. I find people who are having trouble saying something, and I help them get their message across in a video. This is Maggie. And these are the outfits she wears in front of her parents. My parents haven't seen me wear shorts in probably 10 years. That's because her body is covered in tattoos, and her parents have no idea. Maggie's parents are conservative Christians, and they really hate tattoos. My parents think people who get tattoos are people with motorcycles, probably dabble in drugs, and, and just are probably kind of low life. Drug addicts, motorcycles, drug addicts, This video is for her parents, Linda and Randy, to tell them that she has tattoos, 17 of them, that she's been hiding for 12 years. We didn't know where to begin, so we had this idea to call a minister. Maybe he could help. This is Max, the pastor of a church in Connecticut. Linda and Randy, Maggie thought if you saw a minister be okay with her tattoos, it might help you be okay with them too. The first few tattoos that I got were really Christian. I have right. a cross. I have a dove that represents the Holy Spirit. That's like straight off of a stole. Right. That's like you practically could teach Sunday school with that tattoo. <laughs> exactly. Maggie's tattoos all have stories. They say so much about where she's coming from and who she loves. My side is a big anchor that says mom and dad. Oh, wow. <laughs> that tattoo is wishful thinking. It's like this secret conversation I'm having with myself about my frustration for feeling really distant from my parents. Tell me a little bit more about faith when you were younger. Oh gosh, I remember when I was little, I remember saying, God wants me to be happy. And my parents said, no, he wants you to obey him. He doesn't care if you're happy. To me, God is so much more than that. There's also grace. I think that is, is something that gets forgotten a lot in my family. Grace, in my understanding, is mostly forgiveness mm -hmm. and the ability to screw up and, in the eyes of God, be just as good as you were before. I guess the question is, 
Are you asking for their forgiveness? The only thing I want from my parents making this is the ability to be honest with them. Gosh, I can't give up. Mm -hmm. I still want to have this really intimate relationship with them. All you can do is invite them to know who you are now. I hope they have the good sense to accept a very lovely invitation. Okay, so that was the video we made for her to show her parents. We didn't know how they would react, so we recorded a song for every possibility. I want to So we flew her out there to show it to her parents, and she didn't show them the video. She said she got too freaked out. So we flew her out again. Her parents didn't want to be in the video, so we talked to her about it. I was so sure that they were going to react one, they, one way, and they reacted totally differently. The moment they saw the tattoos, I realized that I had been making all these assumptions about them. Maggie had been totally wrong about her parents. Turns out they have no problem with tattoos. And beyond that, they weren't the kinds of Christians she thought they were. Her dad even said he doesn't think of himself as conservative at all. The conversation we had, you know, after we watched the video about who they define themselves as, as Christians, what they think religion is, um, was one of the best conversations we've ever had. Just to say, I think it's very easy for a lot of people to assume the worst in their parents and see them as these curmudgeon old people, but they're not. Yeah, they've shown me a ton of grace, and that was something I, I accused them in the video of not having any grace, which is exactly what they have shown me. Pretty amazing, isn't it? It's a great little story. I, there's so many layers to this video. Um, Maggie's misconceptions about her parents and their faith. The idea that tattoos could be a wall that separates her, with her from her parents and, and makes the relationship more distant. The idea that Christian faith and grace hinge on lifestyle markers like tattoos. There's so much in this video to reflect on. But I want us to focus on the, the, the idea of grace in this video. When Maggie's parents in her world, show her grace by not caring about the tattoos and even explaining the way that their faith works out for them. They showed her a grace that she didn't think they even had, a grace that she didn't think their Christian faith could produce. They show her grace. And in this way, Maggie's parents are a reflection and embodiment of what Paul is teaching on in Galatians. Grace makes a relationship right. And the love of the parents shine through to Maggie, and their relationship is transformed. She says they have the most intimate conversation they've ever had. And she, through all her striving with even the anchor tattoo, is drawn closer to her parents through grace. Paul wants us to know that we are made right before God, not by anything else other than faith in him. And again, faith is our whole life trusting, active, and interactive relationship with Jesus. And it's a gift of grace, bought at a high cost by Jesus' faithfulness to the cross, so that we could be set free 
from sin, brokenness, evil, indifference, selfishness, and apathy. We can be free to live with Christ in us. So to have faith, a full whole life relationship with Jesus means to live into the grace given to us. This is grace that it's active, living, directional, and relational. To have faith in Christ, the one who is faithful, means to receive grace and then be that grace. Be that grace. So what does this all mean? Again, a lot of this has been very technical, but let me, let me just make this really simple. If you've been justified by Christ, then live justly. Pursue justice in the world for others. If through Christ, through your relationship with Christ, you've been made holy, then live holy lives. Rid yourself of the ugliness of sin and selfishness. If you've been forgiven, even though you don't deserve it, then forgive people who don't deserve it too. If you've been included into a community and welcomed into community, even though you're not right in many ways, then include and welcome others into community, even though they aren't right in many ways. If you've been rescued away from our culture's addiction to consumerism, comfort, convenience, anything, then help rescue others from into freedom of contentment and gratitude and humility. If you've been loved by God, who is love, then love others. The grace you've been given is the grace you can live. So as we close today, I want to encourage all of us to dwell deeply and live fully into the freedom of grace given us in Jesus. We've been given grace to let grace transform us that we might give grace to others. That's what it means to be justified by faith alone and not by works of the law. It means to take all the things we've been given as gifts of grace. Our time, our money, our talents, our personality, our energy, all of our things, and let us live into God's grace. We do this by serving others, your community, your friends, your families, your enemies, the poor, the marginalized, the common good. You do this by seeking justice for those who've been um, oppressed by injustice. You do this by not seeking revenge, but by seeking reconciliation. You do this by building bridges and not walls. You do this by being a peacekeeper instead of a peacemaker, instead of someone who gossips or seeks passive aggressive moments of revenge. You do this by loving those who are hard to love because Christ loved us first. That's what's been given to us, and that's what we have to give. That's what it means to be justified by faith in Christ alone. And it's not easy, but it's real. It's real. Grace is what it means to live lives justified by faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you that because of Jesus and his faithfulness to the cross, we are made right with you. And we are made free. We no longer have to be bound by our own rebellion against you. We no longer have to be bound by any other identity other than our relationship of faith with Jesus. And we no longer have to try to impress or validate our lives with any measure of success, financial freedom, body type, lifestyles, or religious or moral perfection. Thank you that we are justified by faith in Jesus alone. Thank you for reaching out to us and having a relationship with us. God, help us to, help us to push in to, and grow that relationship. Help us to draw closer to Jesus. Help us to know him better so that we might be made free by the grace uh, that is the gift of faith in Jesus. God, you've given us grace. Let us be transformed and be vessels of your grace to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.